You're listening to the podcast of Christ Church in Albuquerque, New Mexico. We hope these sermons help you to know God through Christ by deepening your belief in the gospel. The reading this evening comes from 1 Timothy chapter 4, verses 6 through 10. If you put these things before the brothers, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus, being trained in the words of the faith and of the good doctrine that you have followed. Have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths. Rather, train yourself for godliness. For while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way, as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. For to this end we toil and strive, because we have our hope set on the living God, who is the Savior of all people, especially of those who believe. This is the word of the Lord. Father, we are thankful for your word. We pray now that you would speak to us in it by your spirit and fulfill all of your promises to us and accomplish all your purposes in us. We pray, Father, that you would come with words of power because my words are weak and frail. So, Father, we pray that you would fill this place by your spirit with love for each other and for your son, Jesus, in his name. Amen. May be seated. It's good to see you all this evening. We are slowly but surely working our way through Paul's first letter to Timothy. Hopefully you can find that in uh, your own Bible that you've brought with you or in the pew Bible in front of you. The translation in front of you might be a little bit different than what we are preaching from the English Standard Version, but hopefully you can follow along with us in chapter 4 of 1 Timothy. You can find that in the table of contents if you don't know where that is. Well, not unlike Ephesus, which is the city that Paul left his young pastoral protege, Timothy, to lead and correct the church, uh, we also live, just like Ephesus, in a culture that loves athletic competition. What a gift that sports and that fitness and competition can be for us, how fun it is to play and watch sports, how great it can be to steward the bodies that God has given us in taking care of them with exercise, how God-glorifying competition on a field or a court or a track can be, working hard, of working together with others, perhaps even putting ourselves in positions to love those who oppose us, who wear a different color jersey, I'm certainly not convinced that there won't be some forms of athletic competition in the new earth just finally free from the sinful impulse to glorify oneself and just to humiliate our opponents. But like the Ephesian culture that worshipped their athletes, worshipped athletic competition, so can we. We can often see those as athletically gifted as more important and significant than those who are gifted to work in other ways as more gifted and more important than computer programmers or plumbers or attorneys or baristas or teachers. Nevertheless, while many of us here tonight perhaps couldn't even care less about athletic competition, about sports and physical strain, Paul is going to speak to Timothy, who is living in an athletically competitive culture, with some very implications for us, who even if we do not value athletic competition, nevertheless our culture does. So we'll see our paragraph broken up tonight under two headings, and I think that you'll come to see that these two headings aren't too much of a stretch. 
That is, of dieting for godliness and of training for godliness. So first of all, in, starting in verse 6, our first section of dieting for godliness. Paul tells Timothy that if you put these things before the brothers, and hang on, what things? If you put these things, well, what we saw last week. That is, the demonic teaching of thanklessness. We thought through last week that there are these false teachers who are creating moral laws for themselves, specifically in the case of abstaining from marriage or eating of certain foods, likely meat, and then they're imposing these moral norms on the whole of the community. Instead, as we thought through last week, Paul, or Timothy, is to teach a life of joyful thanksgiving in the freedom that Christ has given. And he is to, verse 6, Put these things before the brothers, the brothers being the church, the family of God, which is what we have seen is what this entire letter is all about. So surely Timothy is to confront these kinds of false teachers. We saw Paul tell him to do that in chapter one of this letter. He used to go and find out who these false teachers are and tell them to stop teaching these kinds of things. But even more than that, he is to put the freedom of Christ before the church. He is to put these things before the church. He's like a, a guy with like a stall at the farmer's market. And what he is supposed to do is he is supposed to, on his table, just put the beauty and the attractiveness of the freshness of his product, of the gospel of Christ in front of those who are walking by. And those who are walking by will then inevitably see the freshness of his of his crops that are like right off of the vine, compare them to the staleness of something that was bought at a grocery store that was perhaps harvested two or three or four weeks ago. And they will see and compare and say, oh yes, yes, this is the good stuff. This is the good stuff. And he's to put the good stuff before the brothers. And by doing so, Paul says that he'll be a good servant of Christ Jesus. While this week... And the next, we're going to see some pretty clear and specific encouragements uh, to Timothy as a pastor with some pretty clear encouragements and implications for other pastors as they are doing pastoral work. There's a whole lot of life-changing encouragement for us all. Paul calls Timothy a good servant. Literally, he calls him a good deacon. This is how you are to be a good deacon. But like we talked about a couple of weeks ago in chapter 3 when we were talking about deacons, there's a real sense in which all Christians are deacons. They're meant to be deacons. Not necessarily they're being set aside as like the exemplary models in the church. Uh, they are given and assigned a specific task to serve the church in that kind of way. But as Paul routinely calls himself throughout all of his letters, he calls himself a servant to Christ or even more literally a slave of Christ. All Christians who are living in the household of God live as household servants for the household master, who is Jesus. And we are to serve others, and we are to serve him with our lives. This is who we are now, as those who have been bought by Christ. We live as his servants, and by doing so, by living as his servants, we actually, finally, now are able to live a life of actual freedom. So putting the wonder and the freedom of Christ continually before the church is the way that Timothy is to serve Christ as his servant, which is something that hopefully all of us are doing, not just the pastors, not just the deacons. But how will Timothy continue to put these things in front of the church, though? The second half of verse 6. By being trained in the, word of the, the words of the faith and of the good doctrine that he has followed. And this word, trained, is literally nourished. 
He is to be a good servant of, the, of Christ Jesus, putting these things in front of the church by being nourished in the things that he has learned, which is why I've got this under dieting for godliness. Being nourished or fed by the words of the faith and of the good doctrine that he has followed. Paul is probably, partly, talking about Timothy's upbringing. We learn in 2 Timothy 1 about Timothy's mother and his grandmother, Lois and Eunice, who first gave him the food of the, gospel, of the gospel. They taught him the scriptures. They taught him the doctrines of God. A good upbringing is like years and years of seminary. And so he grew in the, way, in the ways of good doctrine and of the knowledge of God. And then Paul's probably implying the ways in which Timothy continued to grow in the knowledge of the unfolding plan of God in the years that he spent with Paul. Paul's saying, don't leave that stuff, man. All the stuff that you have learned throughout your life, you have been given the good food. And it was such good food. It was not only just the life-giving milk that you were nourished in in your early years, but then you graduated to the Gerber cans. And then you graduated to the peas and carrots, and now you're eating the steak. And all of it is good. And don't leave that good and healthy, nourishing food keep eating the good diet of the faith and of good doctrine, which means, yes, that there is actually such thing as bad doctrine that will make you unhealthy, maybe even kill you, which now gets us to verse 7. Just as a good diet means pursuing good and beneficial foods that will keep you healthy, a good diet also includes avoiding many other foods that will cause you to be unhealthy. So verse 7, he says, have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths. Avoid these things. Eat the good stuff and don't eat this junk food. Like there are obviously things that will kill you if you eat them. Like there are some certain mushrooms and wild berries and cherry pits. If you ate too many of them, uh, they would make you very sick or perhaps even kill you. But there are also lots of kinds of foods that eaten too much of will just make you really Maybe not just straight out sick, although if you ate too much chocolate cake, you might have a tummy ache the next day, but it will just make it very difficult for you to live a healthy life. And Paul's saying, just avoid these things. Avoid the junk food. Paul here is specifically referring to the kind of myths that he likely brought up in chapter one. He says these silly, irreverent myths that we thought through in chapter one, and this word silly carries a meaning that these are stories that the gullible and easily swayed kind of folks would just hear and immediately believe. We don't know exactly what these false teachers were teaching. We know from chapter 1 that it had something to do with genealogies. We don't know what they're doing, what they're teaching, but maybe things that just looked and appeared spiritual. Perhaps they're using uh, the stories of the Old Testament as like their starting point, but then are like filling in a bunch of gaps. And uh, then if you really believe in these kinds of really spiritual stories and genealogies and myths, uh, then true spirituality will be unlocked for you or something. We don't know. But while perhaps these exact kind of silly myths, which we don't even know what they are, and we perhaps aren't tempted toward believing uh, genealogies and some sort of Old Testament mystical spiritualism through these stories, uh, we certainly have our own silly and irreverent myths that we tend toward believing as a culture. Myths like that the highest value that we should be pursuing in life is that of being entertained. I think this is a value that we hold. 
Sure, school and work are necessary, but mostly just to give me the means and the time to pursue being entertained, to pursue getting off work, getting the kids to bed, and just binging on Netflix until I fall asleep. But the gospel speaks to this to say that God has not merely saved us for a future time in heaven where we must now just bide our time and wait and just turn our brains off and be entertained while we wait, but that he has saved us to a life of love, a life of good works, a life toward others and their needs, not just a life of our isolated consumption, a life of knowing him. We'll think more towards that in just a minute. And just because something exists and it is available doesn't necessarily mean that we should necessarily then watch it. We should listen to it. We should read it. I feel like Netflix and Amazon Prime and Hulu and YouTube even are like those Coke freestyle machines. You know the ones, right? Like just because there is some combination of a soda doesn't mean it's a good idea. <laughs> and yet I think we're like, ooh, cherry, peach, vanilla, Dr. Pepper with chocolate syrup and whipped cream. Yes, please. That's a bad idea. <laughs> but just because something exists doesn't mean that we ought to pursue it. But the myth that we often believe is that my sense or that the whole of my life is primarily about my being entertained. So any option out there is to be pursued because there are so many hours of entertainment possible in my life. Avoid that silly myth. You were made for so much more. Another common myth related to the first is that we individually think that we are the center of the entire universe. We are the main character. This is a myth that is likely as old as humanity, but of course, social media and our, smart, so our smartphones have only further cultivated this myth that we so easily believe. We plan and we walk through our life experiences, big and small, with the thoughts of what others will think of this experience when I take a picture of it or a video of it. Will, should I pursue this life experience because of the amount of likes that it will garner? No, it probably won't look that good through this filter, so I'm just not going to do it at all, or I'm going to make this experience look even better than it actually was. Ugh. Our news feeds cater to us, our blogs cater to us. And studies are showing increasingly that those who are on social media the most are beginning to lack empathy the most. If you do not see the world as I do because I am the center of the universe, then you are wrong, perhaps even evil. And culturally, we would be better off without you. Delete your account, we say. Or, man, I just, this, the, the world would be better off if this person would just die. Like, seriously, like, just get on Twitter for like 10 minutes. It is a scary, scary and hostile place. Just a great Babylon Bee article of satire from Friday. I saw the headline read, Report, there are still incorrect opinions on the internet despite local man's best efforts. <laughs> and so social media, like a great piece of cheesecake, should be eaten, perhaps, enjoyed, yes, but from time to time, and perhaps with a plan for limits. We don't eat cheesecake, breakfast, lunch, and dinner. Not as our main staple and diet of how we view the world and how we think that the world views us. Or to modify something that John Piper has once said, he said, basically, one of the great uses of Netflix and our smartphones will be to prove at the last day that prayerlessness was not for lack of time. Oof. <laughs> More on that in a bit. We could probably keep going with a few more hours of all of the myths that we tend toward believing 
or already believing like whatever feels right, whatever I desire must be right and I should pursue and celebrate that thing as a universal good or that more power, more money, more stuff means more happiness or that politics will save us if we can get our party elected, our candidate elected or the wrong party or candidate out then we can finally live in a kingdom of peace and of love and of prosperity. Or that we should stop making such a big deal out of sex. It's just a biological process. It's nothing. Stop freaking out about it. Or the flip side of that is that just as some might argue out of one side of their mouth that sex is nothing, on the other side of their mouth they're arguing that sex is everything. That is to say that without sexual fulfillment in exactly the way that I desire, I am actually not able to live a fulfilled life. And on and on and on, myth after myth after myth after myth, and Paul is saying, Timothy, diet well. Eat well, brother. The gospel speaks to and dispels all of these silly and irreverent myths. If you want to remain healthy, eat the good food of the faith and of good doctrine. It will help you with your spiritual healthy health, health, just your well-being, and limit or just altogether have nothing to do with the things that look really tasty and sometimes are really tasty, but which will ultimately just cause you to sit on your couch and be of no good for yourself and for the world. So if these are the things that Timothy and we, servants of Christ, ought to pursue, ought to avoid in our diet, what actually nourishes us, Paul then moves to ways in which we should, as athletes, train our bodies or train our souls. So if we've seen what, how we ought to pursue nourishing for godliness, now Paul moves towards training for godliness. He then says in the second half of verse 7, rather, after avoiding all of these irreverent silly myths, rather train for godliness. And the word train there that Paul uses is this, I don't do this very often, but the Greek word gymnazo, which is where we get our English word gymnasium. He is saying, gymnasium yourself for godliness. Go to the gym for godliness. Some of us have never enjoyed the gym. It's just not our thing. Some of us were more regular at the gym at earlier parts of our lives. Some of us still love the gym and couldn't imagine Life without physical exercise, without strain, without growth. But even if you've never been in a gym or haven't been in a gym in decades, uh, what's it like in there, even in your imagination? Uh, it's, it's a busy place, right? There is stuff moving around, people are moving around, there's clanging weights and noise. There's like screaming guy over here in the corner doing squats, right? We all have screaming guy. Uh, some people are like hanging out and just chatting and enjoying one another in between sets. It really smells because work, doggone it, it's happening. There is sweat happening. And this is what Paul wants the church to be like, wants us to be growing in. This is the culture in which he wants our culture. Not just when we meet here, like this, yes, this can be a gym, but perhaps even more specifically in the gymnasiums of our GCs, the gymnasiums of our dinner tables, the gymnasiums of our living rooms before the sun comes up. There's sometimes conflict in these gymnasiums because this sweaty guy over here won't ever clean his bench. We don't, 
We don't like sweaty guy either. Uh, and there's sometimes conflict and it stinks in here. Sometimes we would rather be out in a place where there is no stink and conflict. But largely, everyone enjoys being in the gym. They don't keep coming back if they didn't actually enjoy it because through hard work, there is health. There is growth. So how do we practically gymnazo? How do we train? How do we gymnasium ourselves for godliness? Well, first of all, what is godliness? If we don't know the end to which we are training, we'll probably miss the mark. The word literally of godliness means like a reverence for God, recognizing that God not only exists, but that my life, the whole of it, ought to be lived in the reality that he exists. As we've often thought about, that all of life is quorum deo, is before the face of God, is lived in front of his vision. So I'm not just thinking about what I'm thinking or saying or how I'm acting or reacting when there are other Christians around or my family is around or I'm at church on Sundays or at my GC on Tuesday nights or something. But that I'm thinking about what I'm thinking about, what I'm saying, how I'm acting and reacting in my whole life, in every hour of the week, when I'm eating or drinking, waking or sleeping, when I'm reading the Bible, yes, and also watching Netflix, when I'm driving or playing, when we are writing contracts or building buildings or closing a sale, I am thinking of God exists. My life is lived in front of him. We servants of Christ begin more and more in increasingly regular ways to desire to live all of our lives in ways that are pleasing to him. We act and react in godly ways. But what does Paul say about godliness? How are Christians who are alive in Christ, who are trusting in him for their righteousness, how do they actually become godly? Does he just give them a red pill that they're supposed to swallow and then next minute they are godly? No, that's not the way it works. We don't stumble into godliness without a plan. We don't stumble into godliness without intentionality. There aren't steroid shortcuts for growing and for training. Even the most gifted athletes must train. Gold medal athletes have spent thousands, tens of thousands of hours training. But that's boring. What we watch on NBC every two years and get to the gold medal stand, that's exciting. The tens of thousands of hours training are not but so it is with the Christian life. Christians must train for godliness. We do not stumble into it. Godliness is not a passive reception, receiving of something passively, but it is of active pursuit. We must know and consume God's word. We must read the Bible ongoingly and regularly. We Christians, we must pray. We must come to church. We must be with God's people and be reminded of his presence and his grace, weekly reaffirming our covenantal union with one another and with Christ. But we know this to be true in all other areas of life. We know that if we want to make good grades, we discipline ourselves in study. We know that if we want to become a journeyman electrician with new certifications, Seth, where did he go? 
Where's that beautiful beard? There it is. Seth, like the last month or two, has had to say no to hanging out socially with many of us because he had to go home and study for a massive three-day test that he took this week. If he didn't study, he wouldn't have passed the test, but he worked hard, he disciplined himself, and he passed the test. If we want to finish a marathon, if we want to even just lose a few pounds, we have to discipline ourselves. So we make a plan. We even set alarm clocks. But growing in godliness, I think we're, we're often like allergic to this word of discipline because it seems, it feels like legalism. I mean, like, seriously, Sherman? Like, were you not here for this last, like, were you not listening to your sermon last week? Like, you were preaching on how we cannot add any other, like, norms of righteousness, any other laws apart from the righteousness of Christ and Christ alone. And then you say, seven days later, you say that we must read the Bible. We must pray. We must come to church. Like, weren't you here? Weren't you listening? Yes, I think I was here. <laughs> I was here for that when I said that. But maybe Brian Chapel can help us here when he says, discipline sounds so much like legalism, but such thinking is mistaken. Legalism is self-centered. So everything that we thought through last week, all of that was self-centered. But discipline is God-centered. The legalistic heart last week says, I will do this thing to gain merit from God. The disciplined heart this week says, I will do this thing because I love God and I want to please him. I don't need to for my righteousness, but I want to. Paul knew this difference well, and he never gave an inch to legalists, even while challenging Christians to train yourselves for godliness. And so, just as when you are training for a marathon or you are trying to lose a few pounds, you make a plan. And so plans for growing in spiritual discipline can be equally helpful. A plan for Bible reading. A plan for a time of the day in which you intend to pray. And for what? Perhaps even asking others to come into that plan with encouragement and for accountability. Many folks don't find regular progress or discipline in the gym without a lifting partner or without a running partner. So I think it's safe to assume that this, the same could be true for spiritual discipline. Another thing that we must be realistically aware of is how if we have for years and years been out of the gym, we've been out of exercise for a while, perhaps we've never been in good shape before, going to the gym initially can be very difficult, can be very discouraging. Like you're looking around and you put like, I don't know, a couple of tens on the bench press bar, and then you look over and then screaming guy over here has like 345 plates on each side, and you're like, well, shoot, I am a failure. I should go home. But your body, your habits are not used to this. Sometimes it's difficult. Sometimes we tend towards comparison. Sometimes it just hurts. It's awkward. Praying for the first time ever or for the first time in six months is a little bit awkward. Can we all agree with that? Yes, sometimes it is because new muscles, new spiritual muscles, new habits are being formed and are being stretched. So begin, beginning to read the Bible this week, starting to pray more regularly, to ask for God's help may be really difficult and awkward. But these spiritual muscles are being broken down in pain and in awkwardness 
so that they can be rebuilt. So don't quit. New habits are really, really tough to build, but then they are very hard to break. It might take months, but eventually you'll get to a place where you like couldn't imagine living without God's word, without prayer, without being here with God's people on Sundays. But you're not just training for today. Here's something that's really great about where Paul's going to go next. You're actually training for the future. Verse 8, he says, For while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way, as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. So he's not just saying, it's, it appears initially that he's saying, hey, we should all go out and train for godliness, or train, train uh, bodily, right? Because it's of some value. He's saying, no, like I think we all agree that there is some value in bodily training, but why in the world would we not pursue it in every way spiritually because training in godliness is future-oriented. I can't find the quote anywhere, but I've somewhere read something to the effect of that going to church on Sunday is about the easiest thing that God asks of you. All you have to do is like walk outside, maybe you brushed your teeth, maybe you didn't. You get in your car, you walk, or you walk a few blocks if you live nearby, you're here for about an hour and a half. And yet, for many, doing even the easiest thing is often very difficult. And if we don't obey him in the very easiest things, though, then why in the world are we not surprised that we don't obey and honor him throughout the week or five years from now? He has given us ways in which it is very, it's a very low bar of obedience to train ourselves to grow in obedience so that we might be able to grow and act and react in godliness in the future and in harder ways. And so we ought to tell ourselves now, even as an act of future-oriented hope, that if I am physically able, I will be with God's people on Sundays. This is an act of faith, of future-oriented hope. Reading the Bible, praying, going to church, meeting with your GCs, None of these things are necessarily, kind of like what Ryan was saying right at the beginning of our service tonight, these are not necessarily so that you'll have a wonderfully exciting time. We could try to make this more exciting. Maybe we should, maybe we shouldn't, I don't know. But all, I think all of this, this is, we have perhaps unwise expectations for what all of these things are for. Reading the Bible coming to church is not necessarily for our entertainment. And so if we come into that with, our, with that mindset, those things don't have the immediate payoff that Instagram or Netflix has. And so perhaps reading the Bible gets a little bit boring, but my smartphone is calling, so I'll go there instead. But all of these things are slowly and often unobservably transformative. They are future-oriented so that we are actually able to live more godly lives next week and next year and next decade when we are at work or when we are at play. So that when we lose our jobs or when we lose a loved one or any number of very difficult things that are going to inevitably go wrong in our lives, we have built our hope on nothing less than Jesus and his righteousness. We are building a foundation on the rock of God's promises. And so when Paul says that physical training is of some value, 
He's saying, yeah, we can all agree that this has some value. And if we can all agree that there's some value in that, then and it's worth putting time and attention toward, why in the world would we not put so much more time and attention toward growing in godliness, which has value for eternity? We Christians are not just waiting, not just biding our time, waiting for heaven. It's true. We look for his return. We do wait, but we wait with expectation. God is already making us now into who we will be for eternity. Now, not just at a future point, but he is working, making, shaping us now into who we will be for eternity. So that's why what Joanna read from 1 John 3 is so good. That he, those who he will make pure purify themselves now. We are, we are becoming what we will be. So we train for that. And parents, in our sports-crazed culture, this particularly hits home for us as well. How many hours a week do we push our children in practices, in discipline, in travel, for school, and for club sports. We are just now, we Shermans, on the very brink of this and are seeing the future ahead and are terrified. But there's some value in that. There's some value in discipline and practice and travel and games. But how many, how much more infinite value is there in the hours of pouring God's word over our children and putting him in front of them. We have 18 very short years or so, parents, with our children to place an indelible image of the triune God before their eyes. What we do and what we put before them will shape them. More than likely, our children will not think the Bible is important for themselves if they do not see or believe that we think the Bible is important. Our children will not think that church attendance is that important for their lives after they leave your home if you have taught them, even implicitly, that regular practices and games and tournaments are more important than church attendance. Our children are arrows to be used and to be released as weapons of God's grace for the kingdom of Christ. So, this is something that we should continually reconsider for ourselves. We parents who have children, certainly Marcy and I, as we are nearing a more hectic schedule with them, in which direction are you pointing this arrow? And in which direction are you pulling them to release them? What we show them is shaping them, and more is caught from them than is taught. So, verse 8, for while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way, as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come, for our children, for ourselves. And then in verse 9, referring back to verse 8, Paul says, the saying is trustworthy, that bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value of every way. That's trustworthy and is deserving of full acceptance. For to this end, the end of the present life and the life to come, we toil and strive. We are like an Olympic sprinter. We are 
toiling, working, straining, and then striving, straining towards the finish line. Why? Because we have our hope set on the living God, the Savior of all people, especially of those who believe. Our hope is not set in physical fitness or of losing weight or of gaining muscle. Our hope is not set in entertainment or in sexual fulfillment. Our hope is not in our good works or our knowledge of the Bible. Our hope is not set in our church attendance. We have not set our hope in politics or in politicians. We have set our hope on the living God who has moved toward us in grace and in love. Even while we were weak, while we were undisciplined, while we were miserable sinners, while we were self-centered and self-worshipping, Christ died for us. And second half of verse 10, this Christ, this living God, is the savior of all people, especially of those who believe. Now this is admittedly an awkwardly worded phrase, but it doesn't have to be terribly difficult or certainly problematic for the doctrine of the exclusivity of Christ that only those who are united Uh, to Christ by faith in his life and his death and his resurrection are saved. There is salvation in no other name or way. Paul is clear about that over and over and over and again throughout his letters. So he's not just suddenly diverting from that key doctrine. But as we saw in chapters 1 and 2, Paul is very clear that the scope of the gospel is universal. There isn't a nation or a people or a language that is excluded from salvation. God desires to offer the gospel to all kinds of people without exception. And so the living God is the savior of all people, of every tribe, tongue, nation. They will all worship him before and at his return. But then this word especially is perhaps really not clear. More often when Paul uses this word, it is more clear that he's saying it or using it to mean that is or I mean. So we might interpret Paul as saying, we've set our hope in the living God, like the triune God through Christ, the the God-man. He is the savior of all peoples without exception. That is, for those who believe. What I mean is, for those who believe. So he's saying, the gospel call, God desires all people, without exception, all kinds of people to be saved. But what I mean by that is, and how he accomplishes it, is for those who believe, who have actually set their hope in the living God. So this is a question for us all that confronts us all and ongoingly. Are you presently and actively believing in Christ? Have you set your hope, not just in the past, but in the present, In the living God, are you trusting in his promises, grasping onto him in faith? If so, praise God. He has done a great and miraculous work in your life. Keep believing. The rest of your life is now about knowing Christ more, more deeply. If you were at the Claire's conference this weekend across town, Kevin DeYoung yesterday afternoon was just really encouraging. Don't just be content to stay in the kiddie pool. Kiddie pools are really fun for three-year-olds, but they're not that fun for adults. There's not much you can do as a 35-year-old dude in like four inches of water, right? Go to the deep end. Swim in deep and good doctrine. Read the Bible. Read good books about the Bible. 
Keep believing. The rest of your life is about knowing Christ who loves you, who gave his life for you. And so the rest of our lives as Christians is now about dieting, about nourishing ourselves, avoiding bad and junk food, but is also about training, about growing in godliness, about what we are consuming and then how we are growing. But if you don't know Christ, if you don't know Christ, if you are assuming that you are at peace with God just because you are a person, not, as he describes in that last half of verse 10, that is, especially for those who believe, is it for I who believe? Are you just assuming that you are a person, that he, he just generally saves all people, because he's a God of love, yes, he is. But his love is also shown in justice. Or are you assuming that because of what I have, have done, because of the good things that I do and the bad things that I avoid, therefore he'll save me? The Bible is clear. And friend, you are not at peace. You stand at odds with the God who made you. And yet, he desires for all kinds of people to know him and to trust him without exception. He desires for men and women to know and trust him. He desires for us to be made right through the finished work of Christ at the cross who loves you. He desires your freedom. He desires your joy, your peace, your eternal life in him. Are you trusting him? him? Maybe tonight might be the night that you would confront your life which like all of ours has been lived primarily for your own self, for your own desires. Maybe tonight is the night that you would know Christ and be made right, be made new. If this is you, I would just assume, and I, I, I do just assume that there are folks with us every Sunday who do not know Christ. Can I just say that we're so glad you're here? We don't think that it is an accident that you are here that God might be wooing you to himself. So would you consider these things tonight? For the rest of us, as we leave this place, we are saved by grace through faith in Christ alone. What Ryan read to us in Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. But verse 10 follows. For we are his workmanship, which he has created for us and he's prepared in us for good works. Much more to think about next week as we consider those things. So come back. If we are physically able, let's be here together next week. Let's ask for God's help this week. Oh God, we are so thankful for your word. We are so thankful that you regularly confront us that though we don't see you, you are there. And we can know you. We are thankful that you have move toward a rebellious humanity, not only with mercy, but with grace and with adoptive love, that you would consider us your sons and daughters through Christ. We are thankful that you do not require disciplined godliness on our part for us to be made right before you. We can never be disciplined enough, but that we are made right because of the disciplined godliness of our older brother, Jesus, that he has earned an inheritance that we share with him as our own. And God, we pray for this, those who are with us tonight who do not know Jesus in a saving way. 
We know that they are not here by accident or coincidence, so we pray that even now, Holy Spirit, you might woo these folks to yourself, that you might draw, that you might convict, that you might give life, that you might fill, that they might find forgiveness and life and peace, that we might consider them full-on brothers and sisters in the Lord, equally weak in our sin and our rebellion, but equally confident in the strength and the love of Christ. We pray that you would bring life initially to some, ongoingly to us all. For the sake of Christ, we pray. Amen. We hope you have been encouraged to deeper life in Christ through the preaching of this sermon. For more information about Christ Church, visit www.christchurchabq.com.